All right, welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Andy Lipson with co-host, community organizer and socialist Kenny Zepeda, and guest co-host Jessica, college-level lecturer and organizer in Washington State. We are online at what-s-left.webnode.com. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. Thank you. Um, well, first off, you'll notice Eduardo is not here today. So I, uh, you know, if anybody who's wants to hear Eduardo, unfortunately, he's not going to be here today, uh, largely because I scheduled this 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 meetup at the wrong time. Um, but Jessica will be standing in for him, and you will also notice um, that. Uh, a previous guest or a person who's been here a lot is here today, John Kleisick, um, and he's joining us. And John Kleisick is the author of School Ward Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education. And he is a contributor to Unlimited Hangout. Um, he is also the director of writing and editing at Black Freighter Productions Books. And he holds a black belt in classical Taekwondo. And he is a certified kickboxing instructor under the International Muay Thai Boxing Association. So welcome, uh, John. Hey, Greg, you back to yours. Excellent. Um, and today you're gonna be talking to us about your article that you just came out with, uh, maybe about two weeks ago, um, about unions uh, entitled The American Federation of Teachers Sells Out to Rockefellers, Tri Trilateralists, and Big Tech. Um, and one of the reasons I was hoping to have Jessica here for that is you're going to talk to us about unions. And Jessica, you've had a lot of experience in organizing in your union in the past. Is that correct? I wouldn't say a lot, but yes, I have been an active member of my union at yeah. my university. Yeah. And um, I, I thought that the, the stuff in your article was really interesting, Jake, hoping you can share it with us here. And we'll see what kind of questions come up from myself or Kenny or Jessica. Awesome. Yep. So why don't you just say a little bit about why you even got into writing this article? I think start there um, and then maybe a little bit about what you found in it. Okay. Yeah. So I, well, how did I, how did I uh, come to write this article? There's a couple different ways. It's kind of in some ways started way before um, I actually put any pen to paper or, or started digging deeply into the research. Uh, and that is, I, uh, this is last, this is almost a year ago, actually. Uh, back in October, that yeah, last year, wow, it doesn't seem like a whole year, but it's a whole year. And uh, I spent 30 days uh, with my friend and my mentor, Charlotte Thompson Hidrubee. She's uh, the one who wrote the forward to my book. She also wrote The Delivery Going Down in America. Uh, she was she worked for the Department of Education under Ronald Reagan. She blew the whistle on something called Project Best, um, and that was what got her fired and basically got her into uh, to write the book. She also worked for this the State Department. She was Middle Eastern Affairs. She was also uh, Soviet Affairs. This was before she went to the Department of Education. Um, and I was there, and she gave me access to all her files. Um, and she had a, a barn with. Uh, 36 cabinets full of documents that she kept, not just in the Department of Education, but other documents for, for travels and other stuff that people sent her. So she let me go through that. And I found a couple of files on, uh, largely on the NEA. And this article that I wrote for Unlimited Hangout was going to actually be 
about 12,000 words. And um, Whitney Webb said, uh, even for our readers, that's probably too long. So she was like, cut it up, which was fine. So half of it was AFT, half of it was NEA. And then there was uh, uh, some stuff on the passports. And so it's going to be three pieces and I'm working on the stuff on NEA. Um, but what got me to actually um, start to put that research that I found in Charlotte's into the article uh, was I just, I, I saw that the, the, our unions in a lot of ways are just, they're pretty much in lockstep with the World Economic Forum and, um, you know, the, the larger ed tech uh, agenda and the ed tech industry. Uh, and some of that had to do with the files I found uh, where there was connection going back to Project Best. Um, and so one of the things that really made me uh, jump into this article and like actually try to get it out uh, was was when the CDC was lobbied by uh, the AFT. So I think the organization is Americans for Public Trust. They got uh, Freedom of Information Act request to get the email exchanges between the AFT and the any uh, and the CDC. The NEA is in there. The, the big the big story in the in the media, mainstream media, was about the AFT because the language that was provided by the AFT. Uh, was adopted by the CDC. And so the CDC at the time, this was back in March, the emails were from February, but uh, the, the CDC had basically said, we could go back to in-person learning at any rate of tra community transmission. And it said that we could reduce the six foot social distancing to three foot social distancing, which you know to me is, is silly because either the virus travels six feet or or it doesn't, right? So I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna get rid of three to three feet, you might as well just um, get rid of it entirely, right? So, uh, but but you know, when I saw that, you know, we've, we've been told all the time, you know, if you or I were to go on social media or any public forum and suggest that the CDC should alter their recommendations based on peer reviewed science or you know other data, that they would say that we need to trust the science and follow the science. Uh, but for some reason, um, you know, it was totally cool for the AFT and the NEA to tell the CDC what to do. And so, you know, it wasn't in line with the, the mantra we've heard uh, during this whole lockdown thing. So to me, you know, anytime you see something like that, it's probably an ulterior motive. Uh, and me knowing what I knew about their connection to the ed tech industry, I saw this as a way to basically wedge in the, the perpetuation of the distance learning uh, and or the hybrid uh, or blended learning. So distance learning is when you're totally online and remote. Hybrid or blending is when you mix the two together. Either you're in the room, and but you're on a pod, a computer the whole time, the teacher, the facilitator. Or hybrid is where you would have to alternate. So if you go from, if you have three-foot distance, that's probably enough space in between desks where you can fill the whole classroom. If you go six foot distance, you're only going to be able to put about half the students in the desks at a time, which means you're going to have to use the hybrid learning, which means you're going to have to continue the whole ed tech privatization thing. And so basically just left the doors open for these companies to continue uh, privatizing the public schools. And so that's that's the gist of how I got into it. And so the rest of the article basically documents um, this one, focusing specifically on the AFT, documents the history of their connections to the ed tech industry and then their current um, uh, lockstep with the larger ed tech agenda. So yeah, I'm curious about, you know, some of the players. Uh, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, you know, as to 
how big is it, who are they, uh, who did they represent, uh, you know, in theory at least. Maybe if you can speak to that. Yeah, so the American Federation of Teachers is the second largest teachers union in the United States. And NEA, National Education Association, is the largest. Um, technically, the NEA is founded as a professional union, right, or union of professionals, and the AFT is classifies itself as a trade union. And so um, you can actually, and I, I noticed this looking through the, the files that Charlotte had, but then also in the other research, and that is that um, they, the, the AFT has always been uh, more um, favorable to the public-private partnerships, workforce training, and uh, basically the corporate agenda. Uh, the NEA tends to at least rhetorically um, not be quite as gung-ho about that. Um, and so uh, one of the examples of how the AFT has uh, historically been uh, in line with the uh, workforce training and the public-private corporate partnerships has to do with uh, President Albert Shanker. He was the president for a very long time, several decades. Uh, and he's actually the guy that conceptualized charter schools. Right? Now, he did, they didn't really call them charter schools at the time. Uh, but his idea was to have basically these um, these pilot schools, these public-private partnerships, um, where you know you pitch it as there would be more freedom for teachers to do their own thing. Um, but it was actually um, it becomes the charter school agenda, and actually on the AFT website, it's the articles of maybe a couple of years old at the most. It's called Restoring Shanker's Vision for Charter Schools. And they basically say something to the effect of, well, it's not about whether they're good or bad anymore. It's just about how can we make them better. Uh, and, and just one more interesting connection to the AFT and charter schools. That is the current president of the AFT, Randy Weingarten. She used to run a charter school when she was the president of the UFT, United Federation of Teachers. They, they have their uh, UFT charter school. And it was... Supposedly, it was designed to show that you could run a charter school and have a union at the charter school, but it still would be effectively a public-private partnership. So, so that's so that's what the AFT is. It's um, it it is right. It's a teachers' union, but uh, technically, it does classify itself more as a trade union, which means right, it identifies more with right the larger um, workforce economy more than just the professional um, agenda of teachers. And the other element of it that makes it a little bit, so I'm in a union called United Educators of San Francisco, and that has like 6,000 members. Something like the, and that's for teachers representing like 6,000 teachers in, San, in the San Francisco Unified School District, right? The AFT and the NEA are not like one union, essentially. They're, they're like a national, they're a national union. They're a union of unions. So what they are, what they are, and we have, if, if I'm, I'm in a union right now, and we have state affiliates, California Federation of Teachers, and the California Teachers Association, which is a union of unions in the state of California for teachers. Well, now think about that whole thing over the country, unions of unions up to the, and then you, now you're talking about things like AFT and NEA. Um, and so that's another thing to know is like, and what we're really talking about is a bureaucracy, um, you know, uh, now they, there is an election and things like that. And we, 
send, we elect delegates who go to a national meeting and, but it's pretty separate from us. Um, so that's something I would say. And I don't know, Jessica, if you want to add anything to our conception of this thing of AFT, NEA and what it is. Yeah, I think you, I mean, I think you said it pretty well. Like it feels very removed when you're just sort of a lowly member of your local chapter. Um, it does feel even, you know, pre COVID very much feels, you know, like a bureaucracy that's very distant and, um, obviously just the reach of that umbrella organization has a lot of leverage over policy and decision-making. And well, one thing to know, though, is like, so I think if this numbers are right, UESF, 6,000 teachers and paraprofessionals, um, we put pay about $6 million of dues, collect about $6 million of dues around that number per year from its members that go to UESF. More than half of that money goes to either the CTA, the CFT, the NEA, or the AFT. So more than 3 million per year goes to the affiliates, goes up there. And now the idea is, oh, look, these are unions and unions. We could all come together and we could strike nat statewide. We could strike nationwide. I, that's not what they're doing. Most of what I do know, and this is the, the stuff that Jake's found, I didn't know. My, but my reason I, I've been suspicious because it's always just money that seems to go to the Democratic Party um, and that, that connection. And, um, but I think Jake is on exposing kind of deeper connections into what I would describe are elements of the capitalist class that are really tight, not just like, oh, these are supposed to be our enemies as workers. And they're just, you know, I guess I'm getting into your material now, Jake, so I shouldn't. No, no, that's, I, 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 so a couple of things. So one is, you're right. So it is a, it's, there, it's a federation, meaning that, right, there, there is a national chapter, a national branch, but there are state level too. Um, and then there's local, right? And so, you know, technically, so the NEA, I, I know I'm kind of mixing NEA and AFT here, but they have largely the same structure as part of the federation. So I'll just use them as a, as a current example. They, there was recently a, a vote at the National uh, NEA conference to vote. This is before the, these governors started giving the mandates at the schools, and they, the NEA was going to get in front of it, and they wanted to vote to say that we all had to have the vaccine passport or the, the vaccine. Okay, not not necessarily passport, but you know that's, that's where it goes, right? And um, and the state level delegates voted it down. So you know, I mean, there is a separation of powers that can sometimes play in the favor of, you know, local, uh, the local branches and, you know, teachers on the ground, but more often than not, it's not going to be, like, if you're, if you've got one local uh, branch and y'all want to go on strike, if the state doesn't want to do it and, and the national doesn't want to do it, you're pretty much not going to get any support. And, you know, most people, when they go on, on strike, they're like, well, we need funding to go on strike. Um, and so, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get it. So, I mean, so that, like you say, that, you know, it's at least a separation of powers and it is sort of, you know, uh, broken up like that. But at the end of the day, it really is the state level and, and the, um, or rather the national level and the state level that sort of set the agenda. Another way to say that is, is if the NEA had passed that at the national, then uh, by default, everybody that basically signs on to the national to the state and local would basically have to go along with. Right. And actually, you know, in my state, they recently did the mandate 
where the vaccine, the uh, uh, IEA already said, yeah, we support it. So, you know, I don't know how much uh, breathing room that gives the local union to say no, right? Um, uh, but the other thing that you know that you mentioned is that um, the partnerships at the national level, uh, they, they, you know, like you said, a lot of times those packs do go basically straight to the Democratic Party. Uh, this is one of the differences, though, that I found in the NEA and the AFT. Right? The AFT more explicitly has a lot more uh, partnership with, like, IBM. Um, there's a lot of connections to the uh, Rockefeller Foundation. And then also um, the Trilateral Commission, which was set up by David Rockefeller. So maybe I should uh, define the Trilateral Commission briefly before I... Uh, Give you a little story about Albert Shanker and the Trilateral Commission. Now that's an example of at the top of the AFT, their their real constituents are corporate globalists. It's not uh, union uh, dues paying teachers, right? And so the Trilateral Commission is basically a non governmental organization. It comes out of the Milner Roundtables uh, that were set up at the early turn of the century. An example of a Milner Roundtable would be uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, and also the Royal Institute for International Affairs uh, in, in Europe or in, in the UK. And so, you know, our, our Council on Foreign Relations is basically the, uh, our, our American version of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And basically what they are, are they're NGOs, non-governmental organizations, so you, you get these... Uh, Think there's like think tanks called roundtables, and you get people from representatives from different industries, media, heads of state, things like that. They get together and essentially plan, you know, the world economy or where do they want to move forward with markets and things like that. The Trilateral Commission was uh, formed in the 70s and it was uh, set up by uh, David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Um, and it was created to uh, like a, a round table that would combine uh, the Anglo-American establishment. So that's the United States and Europe, uh, the Western capitalist countries with some, uh, some of the nations of East Asia. So Japan in particular, but others as well. Okay. And it's basically, again, it's just, it's to uh, figure out how do they want to manage global markets based on, you know, various public-private partnerships, international partnerships, okay? And uh, I found out that Albert Shanker was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And a uh, funny story, how I, how I even found it, was I was asking my friend, uh, her name's Ann Herzer, and she was uh, one of Charlotte's friends who was one of these great researchers. She actually was... Uh, high up at the Arizona Federation of Teachers. Um, and at one of these meetings at the AFT, she told me, because I was asking her some questions to help me kind of zero in on what I was looking for. And uh, she said that uh, she went to a meeting and talked to Albert Shanker. And Albert Shanker, uh, she asked him, why why is it that the AFT only supports Democratic candidates, like, like you were saying? And she said he got really nervous and all of a sudden, he starts shaking her hand and like wouldn't let go of her hand. She says you basically had to yank it out. Well, as he's shaking her hand, I guess he's thinking because she's more conservative minded, although she really, you know, it's not like, you know, right wing like that. I mean, she's, you know, she's uh, active in the union, right? And so it's left enough, right? 
And so he's thinking, I guess, that, you know, he's trying to, you know, uh, score, score bonus points. And he goes, well, I am a member of the Trilateral Commission, not knowing that that would be one of the worst things he could tell her, right? And I, and, um, you know, I asked her, I said, you know, can you, how can I document that? And she's like, well, I, you know, I don't know, but, you know, I'm, I'm telling you that's what happened. You know, you can quote me if you want to. So I said, well, I, I might do that, but let me see if I can find it. And there's a speech, it's in the article, where he admits he's at a meeting uh, with the Trilateral Commission. And, and she, he says there's also, there was, quote, bankers and the head of IBM, right? And so, um, and so that's just one of these examples of, you know, you're, you're supposed to be representing teachers, but you're going to these meetings. And in the meantime, uh, you know, you're going to these meetings with these, you know, corporate globalists, you know, big companies, big banks. Um, and basically, uh, you know, you're all at the same time, you're setting up public-private partnerships. And, and, and I did another article for Unlimited Hangout. It's uh, UNESCO Study 11 and UNESCO 2050. And I basically document how, Project Best was our domestic version of this UNESCO project, which was trying to set up public-private partnerships globally through the ed tech industry to set up the IT that we need for this fourth industrial revolution. So, right, it wasn't just like him selling out the, the American teachers, but it was also partnering with this this whole global world economic forum. You know what's become the, the Great Reset. I mean, you already talked about um, how they lobbied the CDC, right? To keep the door open for um, again more privatization, more uh, ed tech. Um, and, you know, from at least from what I hear, I've heard the argument that, you know, at least from a lot of leftist groups that uh, capitalism wants to uh, basically sacrifice kids, right? So that's what going back to school means, you know, putting kids uh, in, in, in the danger of, per you know, in, in, the, in peril of dying, you know, because, uh, you know, that's what capitalism wants, right? And obviously from us, from this group, probably we have a different view on that, but um, what, what would you say to that? You know, what 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 is the danger? Uh, I mean, is that, do you agree with that statement? You know, that kids are going back to be put in peril uh, by being put back in the, in the classroom? Yeah, and that is the that is the angle that the union makes of saying, they're trying to get us back into the classroom. They want to kill us. Yeah. And sacrifice us in the name of capitalism. Yeah. That's, that's the argument I've heard. Well, I would, I would rebut by ask by posing the question, what do you think would be more profitable to the capitalist class, uh, especially as we roll out this fourth industrial revolution in this digital economy? What do you think would be more profitable to them? To kill off? basically all their little worker bees or to basically acclimate them to the new uh, teleworking uh, infrastructure. Like, you know, that I, I, I would pose a question with a question. <laughs> I would, well, I was gonna... I would also say, what makes you think that they're not in danger, uh, you know, getting these experimental shots and then having masks on their faces all day and the, the psychological damage from that? I would, I would add that to my question. Well, and just with regard to ed tech, even more broadly, like your article kind of traces, you know, the ways that, you know, like the, the Rockefellers, for example, right, kind of use these, like the psychological conditioning in that, right, like as a way sort of in, which is really, I mean, talk about like nefarious control of, of children and young people. So I don't know, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, Jake, like the I was really interested in um, when you were going back through like the AFT 
Rockefeller connections, like the your article here, um, like the stimulus response methods and the the programmed instruction. Like, can you talk about you know more explicitly, just so people can get an idea of like materially, like what kinds of things are we talking about? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, so two, so two levels, right? At the at the uh, at the level of like you know capitalist production and profit, they can monetize all that that psychometric data. Right, but then they can they also use it to, to uh, train the students for what they call workforce competence, right? So it has a it has a twofold effect, right? One is to, they can actually make money just off the data itself, like coming up with different social credit algorithms and predictive analytics, but then they're gonna actually use those algorithms to to train the students to basically uh, be reflexive little little worker bees. So um, the stimulus response method is is basically the uh, root of all of your behavioral psychology. Uh, it was Wilhelm Butt that came up with the idea out of uh, Leipzig, Germany, back in the 19th century. Uh, and then you have different theorists, different psychologists who sort of refine it. You know, you go from the stimulus response or classical conditioning, then it can become behaviorism with people like John D. Watson. Uh, E.L. Thorndike, and he did his puzzle box experiments with animals. And then based on that, B.F. Skinner came up with uh, operant conditioning, which is pretty much the, you know, one of the uh, more modern versions of this stimulus response. So basically, instead of just having one-way stimulus response, uh, the behaviorists, they basically, um, they came up with algorithms that were uh, used reward punishment cycles and then the operating condition uh, theories, they basically add two more quadrants to it. So it's like positive and negative punishment, positive and negative reward, right? And then, um, and so uh, where the Rockefeller Foundation comes in is they basically funded, funded it uh, through the General Education Board, uh, through the Rockefeller Foundation and other Rockefeller philanthropies. There's so many Rockefeller philanthropies, it's not funny. The Rockefeller Family Associates with Rockefeller uh, family advisors, there's the you know, JDR the third fund, there's Rockefeller Foundation, there's Rockefeller Impact Investment uh, Fund. So um, all of these at some point have been involved and we could start with uh, one of the founding members of the American Federation of Teachers was John Dude, right? And so if you're in education, right, you're not going to get through school, especially if you're trained to be a teacher without hearing about, you know, uh, the praises of John Dewey. And so what John Dewey did was um, he basically took uh, that stimulus response method and he, he added more like holistic psychology from somebody like uh, William James. Okay. And so um, he, he thought that just the whole, um, that the mechanistic system of like environments and, uh, you know, the, the, the person, um, receiving the stimuli like like you know it was just this direct mechanism he thought that there it had to have more of like a, 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 it had to be immersed in the culture most so, so what he basically did was he came with this thing called functionalist psychology but it still integrates the stimulus response method so well, when he goes to the university of chicago i should mention that john dewey um he studied under G. Stanley Hall. And G. Stanley Hall was basically the first American uh, to get a PhD from Wilhelm Wundt. So he went over there in Leipzig. G. Stanley Hall came and brought it back. And then there's hundreds of PhDs that would basically start 
all of the seminal psychology classes, right? Before that, uh, psychology was basically a subdiscipline of philosophy. But after G. Stanley Hall, you started to have departments of psychology, and they were all immediately integrated with educational psychology. So Dewey basically um, he inherits that that system from G. Stanley Hall, and he, he tweaks it a little bit with some William James and James and stuff to create functionalist psychology. And when he goes to the University of Chicago, he was funded by Rockefellers, right? The, the University of Chicago itself is heavily funded by uh, Rockefeller. I can't remember which particular um, philanthropy it was, but it's, it's in the article. Um, and I should mention here that um, John Dewey also, he was, uh, he taught John B. Watson. So John B. Watson, who comes up with behaviorism later, he studied under Dewey. And John B. Watson is actually the guy, he, he was also an advertiser. So this stuff, it goes into to education, but it also goes into the corporate world. And, you know, I should mention that the adaptive learning algorithms, that's the modern teaching machine, they are based on the behavioral advertising algorithms used by Netflix and, and Amazon. And, and uh, they, they, they explicitly use that uh, example. They say it's basically the same algorithms that we use to market to people, okay? Um, and then later, John Dewey would go to the University of Columbia, and he was again funded by Rockefeller money, this time through the General Education Board. This was actually one of the first uh, philanthropies that the Rockefellers came up with. And through the, through the uh, General Education Board, they funded all sorts of behaviorist psychology and specifically designed for workforce training. And there's a quote from, uh, I think it's Frederick T. Gates is, is uh, it's Gates is the last name. It was the guy who basically managed the philanthropy for, for Rockefeller. And in one of the seminal papers for the, the General Education Board, I'm going to paraphrase this, but the, the precise quote is in my book. He said something to the effect of, uh, we don't want to make lawyers or artists or philosophers. We want to uh, we want everybody to keep doing what they're doing in their in their uh, everyday uh, workforce roles, but we want to perfect it. And what that basically meant was this was the emergence of the industrial economy from the agrarian economy. They just wanted to basically uh, retrain, you know, the, the workforce base to be able to um, work in factories and stuff like that. And now what we've got going on, right, as we mentioned earlier, we got this new digital economy, this teleworking economy, this token-based economy. So we want to train these kids uh, to do that, to do the same thing uh, for this next uh, evolution of capitalism, okay? And so the teaching machine that uh, B.F. Skinner came up with uh, is actually Sidney L. Cressy, who's the founding father of teaching machines, but it was B.F. Skinner who basically... Um, popularized it and um and basically what he did was he just he took the whole stimulus response mechanism and he turned the stimulus into like learning stimuli such as like um you know multiple choice uh matching short answer whatever it is right the uh the, the assignment and then the response right is what however the student uh responds to it right so, so you know which letter do they pick you know and Based on how quickly and how efficiently they respond to the learning stimuli, um, that would then either accelerate the student to like honors classes or it would remediate them to like, you know, have to, to retake it until they could move on to the next lesson. Uh, when BF Skinner did it, they were analog, so they were on like, uh, like gears and wheels and a reel of tape and stuff. Um, you just take that, you digitize it, and you remove 
the gears and the tape and the, and the wheels and you just you know create windows on a screen and clicks on a mouse. Uh, you can make it a little more interactive with videos and uh, maybe some video games and things like that. But again, this is what's called, this is now called adaptive learning software from Dreambox, which is one of the, uh, one of the more popular adaptive learning software companies. Uh, but it basically does, it uses those um, behaviors, um, you know, the personalized advertising algorithm to standard response method to track the students into what they call career pathways. And then those career pathways are going to be financed by uh, these paper success grants that are basically what's known as impact uh, financing or impact. So this is like a, this is a little graphic from Dreambox here. Okay. And then you've got the, uh, here's the student here and it's got, a, it's got its number in terms of like how the data gets cycled. So you take the student, you, um, you expose them to the content. That's the learning stimuli. Okay, and then what comes out the other end um, is going to be the student learning data. Okay, and then that feeds into this, goes all the way across through this predictive model, and it's going to create um, a student information system. So that's like the student's psychological profile. Mm -hmm. So like on the right side, this is like whatever the student is, um, the, the learning data that he or she is responding to for that module. And then based on what he or she does, it's going to build this thing over here on the left, uh, and it's going to be like their permanent record, right? And so the thing on the right is always going to be uh, tied to the thing on the left. So, you know, if you do really good on the one on the right one time, but the last 10 times you did really bad, right, over here on the left, it's not going to say, hey, you're really smart. It's going to be like, well, you did good on that one, but you've been doing <laughs> not so good, so you're going to have to try this again. And then uh, based on this adaptive engine, see – uh, the predictive model is going to spit the, the student out either in, into the next lesson, but you'll see it goes back up into the content. So again, right, based on what the student does here on the right side and based on the aggregate over time, it's going to feed, it's going to feed new content that's either going to be more difficult or maybe remediated based on the student's uh, algorithms. Yeah, and in one of the questions, I mean, there was one thing in the article that you had basically said that the AFT has a history of, of, of being dedicated to that kind of adaptive learning model, um, even before you would see it computerized. And in the article, there were teachers who were trying to push for a different way of teaching. Um, so one thing that was a question for me, because I mean, maybe it's kind of limited, but like, because I think of grades and I think of like, yo, yes, that's the right answer. No, that's the wrong answer. What are other models that could have been put in play that educators have wanted do you know about those things because i think i've only i feel like i've only been because i think of grades and grades to me feel like part of that thing that seems like a that's like a skinner thing isn't it yeah in some ways it is right so like uh you know even like the whole gold star and the, you know the um uh, you know, the detention system all that you know they're punishments and rewards and i think it's alfie cone actually the book is punished by rewards he even talks about the, you know, the ineffectiveness of like the gold star system. I remember as as a kid feeling belittled anytime I got a sticker or a, a star. And I, and I don't. I'm not saying other people did, but to me, it was like I know whether I how good I did or whether I didn't. Like, put this little thing on here to like pat me on my head, right? So, um, grades at a certain level. I mean, right? It, it does. It, it can have that uh, that effect, right? Especially you know, in some class they would post your grades, 
right? And like rank you so you know like where you fit in the whole pecking order and stuff like that definitely has, you know, a social engineering quality to it. Um, at the same time, I mean, at, at some level, you do have to assess, um, you know, is the, is the student understanding the concepts, right? And, um, you know, um, I, I think that the alternative models would be, would always, I, I think that any model would have to have some form of assessment. Now, does it have to be like ABCD grade or, you know, could it be like a portfolio of the stuff you did over a semester or a oral exam? Or, I don't, you know, there's, there's different ways, but um, I think that some of the alternative models that uh, a lot, a lot of teachers were trying to uh, push or, or, or uh, you know, offer would be, um, you know, basically classical methods. And classical methods are looking at conceptual understanding, not performance-based understanding, right? And so, uh, you know, as far as the adaptive engine on that, on that, uh, you know, that Dreambox, for example, you know, I remember getting bored doing standardized tests. And start start spelling words like cab, dad, bad, abacadabra, <laughs> right? And like, you know, if you use that to like, you know, I mean, like, oh, this kid, you know, he doesn't understand anything. You know, we're gonna have to track him into the, uh, you know, remedial classes. But you know, if if they see, and, and by the way, they did. They they knew that when I was not doing my best, right? And uh, you know, but they know conceptually, like this this kid actually understands what they're saying. He just doesn't want to do the work and, you know, or at least doesn't enjoy the work in the way that, you know, the, the format that is, that is presented. Um, so the other thing about that is, you know, uh, I don't, so I guess I don't, I don't think it's, it's the assessment rating in itself. It's this idea of keeping this log of everything that you do all the time and then trying to create this permanent psychological profile where, you know, that's going to follow the student, not just in that class, but that module, wherever they go, they go to a different school. If that other school uses Dreambox, it's going to take their dashboard with them. And, you know, like I had classes where, um, you know, I, I was uh, not the best student, let's just say. I was a troublemaker and things like that. And a lot of that had to do with the teacher, though. Like, if I knew I could get away with stuff, I would just keep pushing the line, right? But I had teachers that on day one, they nipped it in the bud, and I, I, I can't get away with anything in this class, and I would perform great. And they would say things, you know, the other teachers would complain about me, and they'd be like, I don't have a problem with it. Like, you know, I don't know what, what you're doing, but, but he, he's fine in my class. So, you know, in this model, uh, you can't get out of that, right? There, you can, even if you go to another class where the teacher, like, can, like, hey, man, this kid's a lot brighter than what everybody says, or, he, you know, he behaves fine when you do it this way. You're going to have, because all this instruction is going to be mediated through the platform, and it's going to have to basically be based on the students, uh, their dashboard and their analytics. So even if you see something intuitively, like you, you won't even have the ability to basically subvert that, um, you know, that permanent psychological record. And, and, you know, and ultimately it's more about what the, how does the student perform than like, what does the student know, right? And, and so, you know, you can demonstrate what you know in other ways besides, you know, what they call performance-based assessments. To me, it makes me think of, you know, obviously like a rhetorical question, what is the purpose of learning and education? Obviously in capitalism, you know, you want to perform in, in, in the market and, you know, for social mobility, access to things and things. Uh, but like, you know, in a non-capitalist society, that's what I think about. But like looking at this, what you just mentioned, 
makes me think of what Alison McDowell has brought up. You know, like we're putting an emphasis on STEM, right? And forget science, John, you mentioned, right? Like lawyers and this, that. Uh, so we are creating a very narrow um, path for learning and, and, and productivity and acceptable reward, rewarded productivity. Because that's, that's what I think of education, you know, um, in our conversations here that we are sorted through at, sc- at the school level in order to be either like a, at the top of the food chain or at the bottom. And, um, you know, a lot of the people that are at the top are born into those, you know, situations. They don't even, you know, they, they go to elite schools. But here we have a situation where, right, we have algorithms and, and people that are writing coded opinions telling you, you know, what you're good at and, you know, limiting you to that. And that's the danger I see here, right? Like, of, you know, if you don't perform to that, especially in a situation where um, compliance, I guess that's what I'm trying to say here, that, you know, ultimately that's what I see as a grave danger, you know, that if you don't perform to what is being asked through these systems, and if you question these systems, you know, you will be, you know, basically killed from participating in these systems. Um, and, you know, that's part of what I think is the danger with vaccine passports, right? That uh, if you're non-compliant, then you're excluded. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense, but I guess that what I'm seeing is a narrowing of the path uh, for uh, the human experience. And, and, and also the ability to participate outside these acceptable mechanisms of learning. Yeah, yeah, and it ties into something called competency-based education, CBE, and it's, it, the, the term is used, I wanna say over a hundred some times, this precise citation in an article I wrote on uh, COVID and distance learning, you can get it on my website. Uh, when they, when they <clears throat> during the uh, beginning of the whole COVID lockdown, um, they came up with 85 FR18638, and that was this bill to deregulate uh, the use of, quote, says adaptive learning and refers to it as artificial intelligence, and it wants to use a competency-based model. The competency-based model is it's about, it's not about, uh, you know, conceptual understanding or holistic understanding or the ability to make up your own mind about that understanding. Competency has to do with you're competent enough. You're just competent enough. You're competent enough to perform the task, right? You're not competent enough to ask questions about the task, to maybe, you know, try it a different way. It probably could be better and certainly probably is at least better for you. Um, and this this model is actually, it's, it's getting a lot more steam now. But all this stuff, and I learned this by going through all of Charlotte's files, all this stuff is at least 40 to 60 years old. But all these buzzwords, they were getting more and more play and they're getting uh, shoved down our throats more and more. Uh, but one of the earlier models of the competency-based education came out of what they wanted to do. With, they really started a lot of the Skinner method actually on reading. Now, if we even go prior to when they started using the Skinner method on reading through something called uh, equity, uh, Exemplary Center for uh, Instruction and Reading, something like that, or Reading Instruction, sorry, Exemplary Center for Reading Instruction. It was one of these places that Ann Herzer, the one who told me about Shanker, uh, had basically discovered they were using the Skinner method, okay? And uh, before that, though, you know, the whole idea of, uh, you know, when they used to talk about teaching literacy, they always wanted you to 
be able to read enough, be able be literate enough where you can read an instruction manual and basically do what it says, but not enough to be able to understand fallacies for propaganda or to ask questions and to be able to say like, wait, I mean, I know what I, I see that I got you know instructions one through five, and I, I kind of I see what they mean on the surface level, but when I put them all together, right, it seems like you're asking me to do something unethical, right? And so it was. So this is sort of the same idea here, except right, it's just remove it from the realm of literacy and then just put it into this realm of STEM skills, right? They want you to be able to maybe do some very minimal coding at the best, be able to interact with the, the windows and the modules, but not enough to understand like how it's data mining you or maybe to be able to write your own code or you know something like that. And just to that, um, one of my friends just finished a uh, program at Berkeley, uh, $12,000 for coding. And, you know, and I talk about some of the stuff, you know, uh, that we talk about here, blockchain and, you know, data mining and completely, you know, unaware, right? They, they just finished a program of coding that, that costs a lot of money. And then now they're they're moving into a career path, right, of, in, in that uh, realm. And obviously is motivated by, the, you know, wanting to have some social mobility, right? Because in anticipating that's where it's gonna be. But again, it, it goes unquestioned, right? And it also makes me think of my other, you know, uh, coworker who just graduated from a, um, uh, he got a master's degree in engineering from Massive State. And, um, and we were talking about, you know, the issues with society, you know, production over production. And his answer was, you know, from an engineer perspective, we just gotta produce more. Right. So this lack of critical thinking and, and, you know, and just that was his answer. He, he didn't he didn't have a, a conceptual understanding of how things connect and, you know, to have critical thinking. So I guess we just got to produce more to solve, you know, the problems of society. <laughs> I, and I, I just want to add something real short, which is, you know, uh, you know, you ask the question, hypothetical question, and it's like, so what is the purpose of learning? And, you know, like, I've, I've been asked that question many times since I wrote the book, right? And I had to think about it all of Because even as I'm writing it, you know, I'm thinking like, well, you know, you do got to get a job when you get out of school. So, you know, but, but that's actually not the purpose of education. The purpose of education is not teaching somebody what to think or what to do. It's it's teaching somebody how to think so that they can make up their own decisions about what to do. And teaching someone how to think has to do with some of the basics of the classical method, grammar, logic, rhetoric, being able to point out uh, fallacies in the, the rhetoric of you know corporate propaganda, government propaganda. And then being, an, and therefore, being an autodidact, which fancy word for being, you teach yourself, right? Most of the stuff that I learned, uh, all of the stuff that I'm talking about right now, I didn't get it from academia, right? I mean, I had to find it on my own. I had to learn stuff on my own, like, you know, like blockchain. You know, I mean, I, I've written about blockchain, but before I could write about it, I had to figure out what is, you know, what is blockchain? What's a distributed ledger technology? What's the difference between a crypto and, I guess, and the, uh, the smart contract? How you prove the contract, right? You have to understand the infrastructure before you can actually articulate it. But at the end of the day, you have a basic understanding of grammar, meaning the symbols we use to identify reality. You understand formal logic and the principle of non-contradiction. Pretty much anybody can give names or categories to the stuff that they identify in the real world. They can tell whether or not what they have uh, organized in their mind either is cohesive and coherent or whether it's contradictory. If it's contradictory, you get rid of it and go back to the drawing board. And you can pretty much work your way through anything uh, as such. But, you know, 
both of these things, grammar in particular, we don't teach, I, I, my degree is in, in English. They basically uh, poo-poo on teaching any form of like formal grammar, sentence guiding learning. That's, you know, they call it whole language learning. Uh, um, and, and, you know, it's, it gets rid of alphabetic phonics and all that. And then there's no formal logic. So the idea, you know, law of identity, law of contradiction, law of tautology, which are these basic principles you use to make sure that the stuff you're thinking makes sense, like they don't teach that. Right. And when they teach rhetoric, they don't really teach ethos, logos, pathos either. Right. Like I've seen assignments, uh, rhetorical analysis. It's got the audience, purpose, uh, style, tone. And those things are rhetorical elements. But the, but the basis of it has to do with logic, trust, and emotion. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, you give a student a, a, an essay assignment. And, I, and you know, I've, I've often, you know, until I really delved into the classical method, you, know, you look at a paper and you go, how did the students start with thesis A? But they didn't even get two paragraphs down before they're saying the totally opposite thing with their thesis. Said. How do you not follow that? Well, that's what happens when you don't have a, a basic understanding of these, these, these simple con concepts, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, you know, a career pathway at the end of it, because you can make your own career pathway if you can make sense of the world, you know? So. Yeah, so picking up on like the literacy aspect of it. I mean, that's, that's my experience too. Like I know at my institution, we're, we're actively discouraged from teaching grammar, um, which I find just so illogical in, a, in an English department. But um, one of the things that really kind of scares me is just the way in which, and I mean, I'm talking about university level, like K through 12, I can't even imagine. Right. But you know, these young people, they're so heavily propagandized and they've grown up without really like knowing any life experience at all outside technocracy, right? Um, that in a lot of cases, like I find that the students themselves are kind of calling for things like remote learning and, and the gamification stuff, um, ed tech devices, and now like lecture capture as we're like sort of returning for a little bit in person, you know, which I just see as surveillance. Um, so I was just wondering, you know, the, the students themselves, like, I don't know, we always talk about agency and that, right. And in higher ed, like, do they have any, how do they see us, the students, I mean, and kind of like, I don't know, I, I always feel, you know, it's like, here we are, like, I'm 32, you know, and, and then going up, right. Like these teachers, we're fighting for sort of the destruction of this system while some of the students are kind of like calling for it. Um, and then like with the rhetorical piece, um, like talking about teaching, teaching rhetoric and that's such a big part of this, right? Like in your, in your article, you talk about, you know, all the, the stupid buzzwords, like the pathways and the impact and innovation and resilience and all of the, you know, just like makes you want to vomit. Right. Um, and I wonder, like, g going back to the, the parallel you drew between education and then advertising, um, and I, like, I see every year my incoming students seem to be less and less literate. And I, I, I mean, I guess it's like, well, that's my job, <laughs> right? I, like, I, I don't know. I need to teach your book, I guess. But, um, yeah, what do you think in terms of, like, I mean, you're a, you're, you teach rhetoric, right? So I'm curious kind of how you, how you think about the students themselves. 
Yeah, so I, I teach it. I'm, I'm an adjunct. I'm at different community colleges. And, um, you know, it's probably not much better at the, at the university level, even probably some of the, you know, more you know, Big Ten schools and things like that. But, I mean, certainly my I, a lot of students, even students that test into 101, which is college level, although I teach, you know, what they call developmental, that's 98, 99, which means you're not there yet. You're still, you know, high school level. And I used to teach GED, too, like, uh, adult ed down the, uh, down the way. Um, you know, in 16 weeks, you know what I mean? There's not a whole, you know what I mean? You, you can't really uh, undo a lot of that, right? So, I mean, so I try to give them a little, like, I emphasize FOS, LOS, PATHOS. I, I basically emphasize the principle of non-contradiction all year long. I don't really get too... Because logic can get, if you're not, you know, used to it, formal logic can be like, whoa, this sounds a lot of jargon and confusion, but like everybody, you know, knows, right, what a contradiction is, or at least I go over it at first. And I say, look, look, the word tells you what it is. You got contra or counter, dick, dick, like dictionary, to say. It's the opposite of what you just said, right? So I tell them, you can get through a paper without contradicting yourself, and you can use your appeals effectively, right, and, you know. You're, you're, you're doing okay, right? You're doing okay. Uh, I try to give them, I don't spend too much time on, on, on uh, special grammars, what they call it in um, form, formal um, or in the classical method, right? So, uh, you know, when we come out of, uh, uh, you know, the university system, we basically get what I'll call deconstructions, right? And so Derrida, um, you know, the postmoderns, there is no truth. You contradictions don't matter. You can say one thing one day and another thing another day. So we are so not only do they not have the actual skills in terms of like how to navigate with phonics and alphabetics and you know, understanding like there's a relationship between the words that come out of your mouth and reality, or at least there should be some objective relationship. On top of that, you get all this deconstructionist philosophy where there is no truth. Right, and what therefore is left is subjective, and what I feel, and what if I feel a certain way, then right, I just make my words fit with what I feel, not with what actually is real. Um, but I, I try to, I spend all the time did distinguishing between general grammar and special grammar. So special grammar is language specific, and that means like you know English has basically a Roman alphabet with a mixture of you know uh, French and German, right, and then it, then it kind of gets turned into a pidgin language over time. Um, and you know, different languages have different alphabetics. Some, you know, in the East, they, they would have uh, uh, what do you call it? pictographs, right? Instead of you know, uh, alphabetics. Okay, we don't spend. I don't spend too much time on that, but I do spend time on general grammar. General grammar means that for any subject that you're going to study, there's basically key vocabulary that you have to understand. Uh, and basically, you know, so if like even even mathematics. As a general grammar, right? You got to know, right? What's the difference between addition, subtraction, multiplication? You have to know your integers, right? Your fractions, okay? Your operations. Once you know those, that general grammar, now you can actually figure it out on your own by applying the principle of non-contradiction. So I, you know, I give them like a crash course in it. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I'm kind of forced to do some of the whole language stuff myself. And I, and I will say one more thing is that there is a certain truth to the whole idea they say oh that you know grammar doesn't uh, teaching stone drill doesn't now there's a certain truth to that and that is that you know I, even anecdotally i can say that I've, I've i've tried it you know like kind of snuck it in and students can do very good on the worksheets but they don't necessarily uh it doesn't show up in their writing because the language the, the, the language they use in their thinking head 
right? When they're writing and they read it, it sounds okay because this is how they're used to talking and thinking, right? They, they think in this in this language. Um, so, so just being able to diagram a sentence doesn't translate like that. And you say that the students, there's, there's been this for years, right? The, the, the statistics are the same. If you're not, you know, functionally literate or up to speed by third or fourth grade, you're pretty much going to fall behind. And again, this goes back to basically doing whole language learning at the beginning. So, you know, at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot. You know, we can't undo it entirely. But I like to think that if I if I teach those principles and the student gets it and they're a thinker and they, and they're somebody that you know is just a, just a critical thinker in general that they can at least take those skills like okay wait do I know all the key terms okay did did I put them in together in a way that makes sense did I contradict myself right and then they can sort of navigate stuff on their own accordingly but um, you know other, otherwise I I try to make my classroom not just like you know like crash course with principles but a place for exploring. Uh, most of the stuff we read, I tell them right up front, like, I don't agree with, we're going to read all kinds of stuff that you're not going to agree with, and that's the point, you know, and so you're going to have, you're going to be in a crash course of, like, having to, having to explain, defend your position on why you disagree with stuff. I'm sure in every other class, it's like, hey, you know, all those buzzwords that you said you wanted to vomit out of your mouth, just re regurgitate these after I regurgitate them to you, and then I will regurgitate a grade on your paper that you like, so. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, maybe we've moved off, the, off a little bit of the track of unions, but um, I think what I heard in your question, Jessica, was, was like, what do we do when the environment, or how, how, do, how do we have this environment that doesn't encourage this? Because clearly the, the ed tech world is going to take an existing environment that has made people narrow more narrow their thinking um but we're kind of already here um i guess that's what i kind of hear in that and we're here structurally uh as educators stuck in that and even if we're in person we're kind of in that situation and we've conditioned students already without prior to the kind of conditioning you just showed us jake with that little you know the thing that from the from the dreamworks that they want to make it even a narrower hole by which to, you know, both assess people and direct people and, 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 and direct their future in a particular way. Um, that's kind of what I heard, which is, you know, it's sort of, it feels like we're already in the trap that we're trying to avoid with getting deeper into it. That's maybe what I've kind of heard in it. Yeah, and I, 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 right, and um, another angle on that was, I remember she said something like, you know, the amount of propaganda, you know, in the advertising, like, you can go to the departmental meeting, and you sound like you're watching a commercial, right? I mean, like, they're just, like, the, it's not just the buzzwords that come down from the Department of Education that, like, everybody just tossed a community-based this, equity that, right? Uh, you know, uh, um, a career pathway is this, Um but then, then, you know, with all the, the, the vaccine stuff, you know, it's like a Pfizer commercial and a Department of Ed commercial all rolled into one. So the kids are getting it from the from the TV, right? The, the department comes, you know, you got all your little cute little posters on the walls and stuff with all your cute graphics that regurgitate the same buzzwords. Um, yeah, that, that's, you know, like I said, I, I it's that... At the same way that you can't really undo all the, the lack of grammar, um, 
you know, I don't know how you you undo that. I mean, um, at the same time, uh, you know, like like there's always a few students, at least in any of the classes I've taught, where you could tell, like that they they get it. Like, and by get it, I mean, you know, like when we read Brave New World, is is my best example, right? And I do that in English 102. Um, you know, there's always a few students that want to stick stick after class, and they they, they understand this. I'm not just you know, wanting to get through this, it's basically a hundred year old novel and, you know, give me your, like, I'm trying to like show them like where the world is going and basically how, uh, how it's been going that way for a while. I think maybe, I, I hate to say it like this because it sounds all kind of defeatist, but I think in some ways you just got to find those students. Like, you know, you, you're, you're not, you know, it's like the catcher in the eye. You can't save all of them. You're not going to, you're not going to grab all of them, you know? And, um, it doesn't mean that you don't, you know, teach them is, is, you know, with the same amount of gusto and you provide the proper attention, but, you know, at the, uh, to, 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 to think that you're gonna, that there's some, some lesson plan or some way to do it that, that's going to, that's going to grab everybody's attention. I, I, yeah, I don't think that's realistic. So. Yeah. For me, at least maybe weirdly, there is some hope, you know, that the people that do see the bullshit basically, you know, like kind of like the workers and students for choice thing that we got going here, you know, people that are willing to like raise their heads up, right? And and look around at the very least, even if we don't, you know, have the same reasons or, you know, for showing up to a space like that. Um, and so for me personally, it's important to have this to me is learning, you know, like having these discussions, you know, not listening to a teacher going through a, a game, you know, to to be told, you know, again, a scripted uh, thing. And that, like you said, John, regurgitate back the information that I'm given. Uh, that is not learning. That is a prison to me and, and limiting. Uh, so I guess my, my point is just like lips and my hope is to grab those, or you, John, I think you said that, but to grab those kids, you know, and those people, not just kids, because I do think we have to have an intergenerational conversation, you know, in order to change this, right? And, because I, I I personally don't accept that, you know, uh, that everyone that's old doesn't get it. You know, like, you know, the generational people, people get it. And I'm looking for the people that are willing to stand up and speak up and be loud. And I think that's all we can do, you know, continue to be loud to, to make those calls into the abyss to see if there is other pockets of, you know, resistance. And hopefully those kids that are rejected are the, the you know, the more human, in, independent, ones that will fight back, you know, because I do think it's an uphill battle. Uh, like you said, it, it's, um, Jessica, it, it's it's concerning, right? When you see teachers themselves asking for this technology, right? Yes, of course, the AFT sold out, right? To the Rockefellers, the trilateralists, you know, and the globalists and all this stuff, but teachers themselves have bought into this, you know, and they've been conquered through fear and logic is, is gone off the window. Right, and so uh, I don't know where I got this, but now we're practicing scientism, right? A religious practice of science, not 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 actual science. You know, we're regurgitating. We're doing all those things that we've been programmed to do. We're not critically thinking, and in doing so, it's a dangerous thing, right? Because we created the conditions, you know, on the left, by and large, to reject those people that think differently, to reject the people that have questions. And to censor and and you know and and punish it in many ways. Um, so again, to me, it's like uh, similar to you, uh, John. Uh, 
I dropped out of college, you know, four and a half years into UC Berkeley. And, you know, I, I was learning uh, political economy, industrialized societies, philosophy, econ economics. I went in trying to learn economics. And then I realized this shit is limiting. The way they teach economics is limiting. It's like, oh, hold these variables. You know, those don't matter. We'll, we'll tend to that someday later. You know, but those are real. It affects real people. And, and, and so by and large, I actually, I find more, um, you know, solace in, or like refuge in, in, in people like my mother who grew up learning about plants and, and indigenous languages in Guatemala. You know, she was a teacher, actually. She was trained in that. And, and I was hands-on, you know, with, with people and learning about nature and how that interacts. And so in that worldview, right, like a more in, indigenous worldview, and in, 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 in the people that are actually not formally educated, you know, like, I think we have to listen to them, you know, because a lot of them have a sense. They may not have the exact words to, or the grammar or the syntax, you know, to, to, to tell you, but, but like my mother and my brother, you know, they're not formally, like, they didn't go to UC Berkeley, but they held me accountable to my liberal bullshit <laughs> during my liberal years. And then I go back and I'm like, you were fucking right the whole time. You know, my mother and my brother were right. You know, when I was trying to convince them to vote in a rig system, they told me, fuck that shit. You know, sorry, we can edit that out. But my brother told me, like, fuck you. I don't, my brother right now, we don't, he doesn't care to discuss, uh, you know, the, the details of the science of the vaccine and this stuff. He doesn't want to get vaccinated, period. And he's like, I don't give a shit with your opinion or someone else's opinion. I just don't want it, you know, in period. I don't have to explain it to anyone else. It's my body. And so that's my point, like, you know, because in some ways, our, our stuff here is kind of like limiting, right? Because of the, the language and the, you know, the, the concepts that we use, it, it's kind of, uh, it segregates a, a sector of, of people, right? Just, it's, it's kind of, uh, and, and so my point is that we got to listen to those, the wretched of the earth, as, you know, Franz Fanon would say, uh, you know, because they have a more like a gut feeling of what's going on. And maybe... We can find something, you know, uh, a way to fight back and organize because the people that are more connected into the system, like the educators, you know, the, te the, te the technical people, you know, they're the ones doing the imperial work, trying to convince the others that they're wrong and they need to be educated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, I just did all I said. I, just, I threw out a bunch of jargon, all this, you know, trivia and grammar, but, but I think. Naturally, like people are born with an intuition for like contradictions. Like, wait a minute, we just did this, but now we're doing that. Like, you know, without getting into all the terms, right? People know that, and especially if you're on the receiving end of you know uh, oligarchy, right? I mean, you're holding systemically. You can look around and see, like, man, why am I always working so hard? You know what I mean? And all these other people, you know, are basically coasted by and they get all the profits, right? I mean, these things are these things are intuitive. And I think that uh, I think it's those students we talked about that, um, that, that, that that when you know like there's those students that you know when I teach grade in the world they kind of they kind of get it and there's others that you know they're just trying to get the grades so they can get the job. I think that those like those other students that do that I think a lot of those students operate on what you like you said fear and confusion and then also a lack of self esteem from being in that place of poverty often right disenfranchised you're the first person to ever go to college right and so you're already feeling like this isn't the place for me i just you know i need there's these are authorities and you know i need to get on the other end so I, and so because they're operating at the emotional level and at the level of stress and confusion 
um, they're largely going to go with what what they see happening around them. So if we reach enough people to where the culture changes and and you know the uh, the stuff on TV or whatever, I mean the the, the, the you know the general discussions that they hear just in the osmosis of general social life, whether it be on TV or not, that's a bad example, right? That that they'll that they'll they'll go along with that, right? And I know that that's not the same as like waking waking people up or whatever, but um, you know, I think there'll always be you know, there'll always be people who are scared and confused and, and they will always kind of just go with the crowd. So if you can get enough, you don't have to get the whole crowd, but if you can get enough people that are that are open to it, that then then the rest of the crowd kind of decides that that's what's cool and not and not you know all this horrific stuff that we're dealing with. Yeah, no, I appreciate the sort of hopeful um, expressions from you both. I guess I just, I don't know, maybe I'll, I think I'm just tired today, but I am just feeling like, man, I mean, the tools that kind of enable me to reach those students, no matter how good of a teacher I might be or aspire to be, are just being taken away at such a pace. You know, it's like I was frustrated before, you know, with the standardization and the grading system and the online learning systems and all of this. Right. And now it's like the last year and a half, I mean, obviously shifting to zoom just eliminates so much of the human connection that you have with those students, especially the ones that are struggling with poverty or tough family situations or mental health. Right. Um, And now, you know, all of the the mandates and the political, you know, politicization of all of it. Man, like it just feels like there's so few opportunities, you know. And and what I want to do is like kind of going back to what you said, Kenny. It's like, I mean, I teach a lot of um like environmental rhetoric and environmental humanities classes. Like, I want to take my kids out into nature, right? And I used to do like community engaged classes. We'd have speakers like from the community who are not part of the institution, not part of you know the ivory tower, like actually come into the classroom and have these discussions and you know, that's, that's just been like completely eliminated. And so it's, it's just, man, like it's feeling really hard to reach those like already few students. And I just feel like I'm like, oh, I just feel like them. I'm like, I'm losing them. And hopefully, I mean, right. Like we're going back. And I, I mean, I don't know where we want to go with this conversation, but one thing I I did want to ask Jake is like, there is some pressure from, I don't know, at least at my institution, like from on high, there's a lot of pressure to go back in person. We have like, I think three and a half weeks until we go back We start kind of late because we're on the quarter system, but already they're like preparing us, right? Like we, we have to go back in person. They've told us like, at least in my department, like all English classes will be fully in person, but then we're also at the same time getting these dictates that have never been there before of like, but you also have to build your online module, like just in case, or if like a student gets COVID, they need to have access to participate in the class online. So you need to like set that up or you might have to quarantine and also the public health guidance might shift. Right. So it's like, basically they're requiring that we be ready at any second for any reason to shift back. And I'm curious kind of what, what you, all of you really think I mean, we kind of know, right, like the the long-term goal is all remote 
ed tech monopoly, like a hundred percent. But I'm curious, kind of, you know, the the pressure to return to in in person, both at K through 12 and university level, which to me seems like very likely to be sort of a short lived return. But nevertheless, like, is the purpose of that basically to coerce medical surveillance and vaccine uptake in the short term? to kind of like get that in place or is that an oversimplification? Is it just kind of to, because it's really hard to deny some of these like mental health, um, you know, crises among young people and kids. It's very hard. I don't know. I, I it's hard to justify like trying to think of it from the alternative perspective, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think about the sort of like, no, we're, we're going back in person. Yeah. They, um, you know, they wanted, they asked if we were, if I was afraid to go back, like afraid of COVID, I'm afraid of that. I, I'm afraid of your contact tracing policies and your vaccine policies. So I was like, I ain't, and they didn't have anything, anything on writing. And I'm like, I'm not going back to play, uh, you know, musical chairs between my house and this place, you know, ad hoc and quarantine. You're not, you need a test, you don't. You know, I, I, I was like, if you can, and I asked him, like, if, and I just, you know, politely said, if you can't give me a policy, you can give me an online class. Like, if you can't find me an online class, I'll be dragging trees for tree service this, this semester. And uh, I got, an, I, I basically got all online classes, and I am so happy because they just came out with the mandate. So if I didn't, if I didn't, I, they'd be telling me I got to have one. And apparently right now we don't have to have one unless we're on campus. I ain't on campus, so, you know, I don't have to deal with it. But I'll add this, that, so, while they were planning to go back, uh, they were all, all talking about at the technology committee, well, we're going to set up simulcast in the classroom. So, basically, if the student has to quarantine, they can watch it through. So, even if there's, like, full in-person, they're still going to be filmed. And like you said, they, they basically, see, before the, the lockdowns, I, I hate to see and I don't like that. <laughs> you know, Bill, going to that whole narrative, I, I, it's really more lockdowns than it is, you know, I mean, uh, you know, 99.9, anyway. Um, but they, you know, before we didn't have to have our LMSs, you know, we, we do uh, D2L at one school and we do uh, Canvas at another. And I didn't have it, never did. I was, you know, I'm old school, you know, paper pen and all that. And, uh, and now they're like, you know, which 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 didn't make it easy in transition, by the way. I had to build everything from scratch and you know all that anyways. But uh they said, you know, now you gotta have that on there in case we need to, you know, whatever, go go remote. So you know, okay, it makes sense. But then they're like, like you said, when we go back, we're gonna film everything anyways. And so that's basically you're gonna be, you know, your blended learning, right? So if we're gonna film everything and we're gonna potentially be going back, they're gonna want you to mediate everything through the computer. And I haven't had to, but people are telling me, other people that are on campus, they're like, yeah, I, I overheard a conversation. I had to go up for a union meeting the other day, and uh they were like, What's going on with uh printing services? You know, if you did print, like we used to be able, you could get it 24 hours in advance, right? Um yeah, it might even be less than that. They're like, you got to do it a week in advance. Like, you know, and if you're doing, if, if, if you're like, what if you want to try a new lesson or, you know, you're an adjunct and you're juggling six classes, not three, like full-timers, you know, sometimes you, you, you can't get to it, you know, like a week in advance. You know, I got three, so, you know, four other classes, five other classes. So I don't know more about that, but it, it, it signals to me, um, 
you know, that it's in line with that shift where every, like, even though we're here, we're really still mediating everything through, through digital means. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's my anecdotal response to that. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I mean, that I don't exactly know the whole game here in terms of, Oh, you go back and, but I, it does seem that the house is winning no matter what happens here. Right. Um, so I, I'm back in person. Oh, I want to be back in person, but I'm, they're collecting my DNA. You know, I've got to do PCR. Oh, you're not going to be vaccinated. You can do PCR. Oh, uh, you're not going to be when, and, and for schools where there's a hard mandate um, and this is happening in LA and I know, you know, JP is facing this situation. He's found, found, you know, his exemption. Oh, you're going to go remote. So it's like, so you can't be in person with your students uh, because, and I know that JP doesn't, is not interested in the digital nightmare. And I know that Jake isn't interested in that, but that's the situation now you get. Oh, you don't want to be vaccinated. Now you go remote. Oh, you don't fight the vaccine. We'll come in and teach and teach our kids. Cause I can, I know you're going to be able to teach our kids conformity. You know, I know you're going to teach to be able to teach our kids that, you know, listen, do as you're told, because that's what you're doing. Um, and in the, in the process, they will be, they already know that they can't do an all remote thing right now, but they, the Trojan horse is already inside the city. And so they can slowly, you know, kind of etch, etch away. And, and then any of us who are really a problem, figure out how they move us out through some kind of either retiree or vaccine mandate or what have you. But the vaccines are, are, are not a small thing. I do think getting everyone to say, oh, we all got to be back together, but to be together, we need to be safe. To be safe, we have to be vaccinated. That is not a small thing. So that in of itself is an accomplishment. Um, so it, it does make me think like that we're not going to educate our students through our education system. And that's what Jake said early on. Like he said that everything, and this is true for me, really everything I've learned, I guess learning to read is important, but everything I've truly learned has been self-taught. Uh, and self-taught doesn't mean it was in conjunction with other people. And in my case, it's like Marxism and learning about history th through that lens, but that was a self-education around other people who were trying to, trying to do that. And you can, you can listen to like, uh, who is the head of the Black Panther Party way back in the, Huey Newton. He talks about self-education through the criminal justice system that led him into the revolutionary politics and Maoism and things like that. That's how he became self-educated. Um, and, and I think, I think we have to understand that the education that we're, that where we will receive education is through revolution. I mean, through the process of fighting this thing, of, of getting out of this system and dismantling that system, that is where the education is going to come from. So until we do that, until we build that network, we are, we are, we will lose because there's, I don't think there's any way of, of, of educating ourselves through their system towards something we're going to, and this is why the unions, they're part of the game, you know, because they buy into the game. Um, I mean, I, I do think Jake, you've un, uh, revealed just how deep, like, you know, in your article, because I would have said that our unions in some ways are just doing what the members want. And there's some truth to that. But what I think what's in your article, Jake, is no, these folks at the top are connected deep to the to the top level oligarchs, the top level capitalists. They're in there with them and they have a same plan in play. And it's not a good plan. It's a very bad plan. And, and it's not a question. Schenker doesn't think it's a bad plan because he has this vision 
of, of, of a world just staying as it is, you know, and, and of workers being made into more efficient workers. And that's what we are as educators. So I, like, I do see in the beginnings of what's happening now, where, where the political associations I'm making are completely strange, uh, very different than what, what has happened to me before of like, I just got off the phone with this guy from Napa who's like, he goes, he's a conservative. He goes, oh, I didn't vote for Trump. And I was like, I got no problem if you voted for Trump, you know, because you're against these mandates. And we had a great conversation. He was like, you know, communism is just fascism. And I was like, eh, I'm not sure I buy that. But, you know, but we are, we're going to work together. And there's going to be other folks like that. And I do, I do see the beginning of a real firm firmness, potentially, to opposing the state, to opposing corporations, to opposing the system. And the attempt to, to destroy it, we, by feeling you're being destroyed by jabs, the willingness to destroy that system that is trying to destroy your body. Um, and that, to me, is where the education will be, is can we, build, can we build a network that can counter this other thing? But it won't happen through our schools. It's just, and, and I don't think it's going to happen through our unions, not through the teacher unions. I'll say that. Because teachers, I mean, we are. We are, we're like, we're like mind cops, you know, um, and, um, and, and we've just, we've just fallen for the whole thing. Um, and our job is now to propagandize people to get on board. And um, that, that association, the teachers who are going to change this aren't going to do it through the, I don't think I'm going to go to class on Monday or today, Wednesday, on Thursday. There's nothing revolutionary except for the idea of association to me, of like human to human contact, of connection, of trust built through that. That's it. That's the only thing that, that I, I believe in and what I'm doing there is that trust in each other by, by seeing what's real with each other through your senses and through how, what feels. And you can't get that through a screen. Yeah, I think that's the importance of what Kenny was saying too. I, I think I see turn his mic off. He wants to jump in, but I just wanted to reaffirm what he had said last time, which was, you know, listening to the people who don't have the formal education, whether they be old timers or not, but people that have like, like wisdom and experience living outside of a screen, like because you know, I mean, I, I, you know, especially these last couple of years, and even towards doing the book, you know. I, I've spent way more time, you know, digitally than I ever, ever wanted to. And, uh, you know, there's, there's people out there that know how to live outside of that. So, you know, you've got these people that are, that, you know, are not formally educated or trained organizers. And, you know, you have to, uh, you, that's part of that coalition that you're talking about, right? And then the other part is, you know, uh, unions like, you know, what Michael Kane is doing, you know, which is, you know, getting out of it, you know, UFT, but bringing about, what do you, 3,000 something people with them at that last rally. So, you know, it doesn't mean that the idea of unionizing as a concept goes away, but it's going to require, you know, coalitions with, like you said, all kinds of, all walks of life who, who believe in, you know, bodily autonomy, freedom of choice, and you know, all that. So, yeah. And, you know, a couple of things for me, um, you know, Lipson, like to you, to comment on your call with this quote conservative, right? Um, just a reminder to people that, at least from my view, um, my life experience with my family, uh, like most of the people that are not getting vaccinated, the poor, the, the black folk, the Latinx folk, they're all actually kind of conservative. 
if you really look at, you know, a lot of the, the people with Latin, people from Latin America, they're conservative if there weren't, you know, if their immigration wasn't that. That's a little reductive, right? We're not a monolith either. Uh, but in a lot of the resistance is actually is happening in these community, poor communities. Most of the people are not getting vaccinated. People of color, you know, conservative, poor conservatives, you know, uh, white conservatives, right? Um, and so, you know, maybe listen to them a little more. And it is con- uncomfortable. You know, I went with my partner to a protest, uh, that protest lives and we went in San Francisco, you know, two, 300 people. And it was a little disorienting, you know, to go there and having to see the American flag, right, being waved because, you know, the American flag is a, is a warning sign. It's not a welcoming thing. And, and but, you know, it, it's it, we're going to have to see through those, that discomfort, you know, and, and find that commonality. And also, I wanted to share the, a story, you know, to the, those teachers that are hesitant, maybe. So I have a coworker. She has a second job. You know, she was, she used to work at a hotel in San Francisco. She was the building rep for their union. She was earning very good money, right? She was a cook. And during COVID, they got shut down, displaced. And they were being bought out. You know, they're buying their contract out. And, you know, they, and they want to close the, the place and reopen with a different type of, you know, crew, I guess, uh, paying less. The point is that she became a gig worker. She worked for Lyft and Uber. Uh, and she recently told me that she stopped um, doing that because uh, she was uh, robbed. Uh, and then uh, multiple times her car broken in. So she was facing the liability of, you know, being a worker for these tech companies like Lyft, Uber, blah, blah, blah. So she became a gig worker as a result of this displacement. And she was a building rep. You know, she's very uh, aware of, you know, power and like, you know, the owners and, and, you know, bosses versus, you know, workers. And the point is that there is a story there, you know, and she doesn't want to give up. You know, she wants to keep pushing to get their job back, you know, to get people together. They've been to protests during COVID. but that that's, I think, the story that kind of reflects what's going to happen with teachers. You know, they're going to drive you out of your building and you know, in, in, in make you a gig worker. You know, for those that are not being, you know, conditioned and tracked from childhood, right? We, we're older. You know, they don't want us so much as they want the young kids. But they still are going to profit from us. And they're still going to displace us, you know, if we don't push back really hard, in, 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 as, you know, in conjunction and understanding that we're not just fighting a, a vaccine, a vaccine mandate. We're under. We're fighting capitalist forces. You know that, that are pretty big, and you know the fight is not easy. But it's going to take becoming. You know, going in, into fight with solidarity with people like my coworker who's still fighting to get her job back, even though she's doing a lot of other gig work. In the meantime, she's still fighting to get back in that building because she understands that that's that's the only way that her. That's only that's where her safety is, right? It being together with other people, and but it is a losing fight because she, she the, the, she's struggling. But I think her story signifies what's happening, right? Because you know the only people that can fight back is people collectively. You know, you, you can save your ass, you know, try to fight a mandate, uh, you know, and and get an exemption, but that's a temporary fix. You know, that that is just buying some time, maybe. Uh, but the real fight will be collective. I think this conversation has kind of gone a little bit different than I thought, but I like it. So maybe Jessica and then maybe Jake, uh, some final thoughts. And I'll just tell people to read your article. 
and scroll down here to um, this this thing here on uh, pay for success and the community impact investments, data tracking, social credit, fourth, fourth industrial revolution. So um, we talked, we basically talked a lot about, um, you know, public-private partnership and the career pathways and then how the adaptive learning software psychologically conditions the students to funnel them into these career pathways and go straight into these corporations. Uh, and those algorithms are designed to train them for those jobs. Uh, this is an infographic here from Allison McDowell. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's the title of it is Pay for Success in the Human Value Chain. So um, you can obviously go to her wrench in the gears and check that out. Um, this is an, I, I like this because this is a nice illustration of kind of, I, when I showed you the dream box thing, that's kind of like, you know, the, the diagram for how it works on one student. This is sort of how it funnels the student through uh, the, the career pathways financed by the pay for success impact grants and how then it goes into uh, the, the corporations. Uh, and so basically what that enables is instead of the, the companies having to pay for in-house training, uh, they can basically get it subsidized. Like the schools are going to pay for part of it, right? And then the, the federal and the state government will thereby, right, if it's a public school, pay for part of it. Uh, but one of the things with the pay for success grants, and the, uh, which is a form of impact investing, is that if the student doesn't get the outcome, right, the outcomes-based education, which is related to the, the competency base, if they don't reach uh, the, the uh, agreed-upon level of competency through the agreed-upon workforce outcome, that company gets its money back, right? So this is a way for it to basically not just make sure it can use the public schools to subsidize their in-house training and funnel them straight into their company, but also where they don't have to waste a penny even on that, because if the student doesn't perform, then you know they're not gonna, uh, they're not gonna, um, they don't, they don't have to, they get that money back, okay. And then um, I wanted to point out that all of the our our friends that we pointed out, Trilateral Commission, Rockefeller Foundation, UNESCO, and IBM, these people, all these companies are invested in impact uh, um, impact finance, okay. This little diagram here is from the uh, Rockefeller Foundation Impact Investment Management Council. Uh, you'll see that it says ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance. So when they give the impact um, investments, it, it can be for like to improve poverty. And so that's when you workforce pathways, but they can also give impact investments for like sustainable uh, sustainability goals, okay? And then they do other stuff like gender equity and racial equity and things like that. So when they talk about environment, if you ever see that acronym ESG, that is basically a little buzzword that uh, basically relates to the uh, the, imp the impact financing, okay? And then uh, you'll see here that um, one of the main places that um, the, in the schools can funnel the impact investment through is through what they call community schools, right? And so I've written several articles on community schools. I've got one that community schools are not the antidote to charter schools because that's basically how they've been being pushed, right? So charter schools that we mentioned, it's like the corporatization of the public schools, public-private partnerships, right? Um, but community schools, although they can have a, a public, a, a, an elected board, which a charter school does not, um, 
what they have to have, if it's going to be a full service community school, they have to have these things called wraparound services. And wraparound services are public private partnerships. And there's wraparound services is basically everything from healthcare. So that could be, you know, your physical health to your mental health. And it's also crime prevention for at risk students. Uh, and then there's also the workforce training uh, components. And then there has to be a data tracking component to it. So in other words, uh, these wraparound services or otherwise they call them pipeline services, uh, you're going to track the outcomes, the student outcomes for the health, uh, the crime prevention and, and the workforce based on the data. The data is basically going to come through all their digital devices. And then based on those outcomes data, that's what's going to determine whether or not uh, the company gets its money back or whether or not maybe you get another impact loan. Uh, and the AFT is really pushing uh, community schools. Um, and in particular, they actually are saying there's especially needed for COVID or a post-COVID society because uh, one of the things that they can do is through some of the social programs is like they might, uh, the community schools might be able to loan out laptops or things like this. But then obviously they're going to give you the, the, the healthcare services you might need. COVID testing, you need some PPE. Uh, uh, and, and then also, um, in addition to that, um, there is the uh, Cardona, Secretary Cardona right now is pushing these pop-up clinics, right? So get your vaccines and all these pop-up clinics at the school. Well, that's a wraparound service, right? And so um, you'll also see if I scroll down a little bit more that um, Several other companies, there was uh, the, uh, the AFT is part of the Coalition for Community Schools, okay, and um, they gave out some awards, uh, and some of these awards were for various schools, various uh, different uh, community schools that I guess had some very effective community partnership programs. Uh, and some of these um, community wraparound services were financed by Goldman Sachs. And then also um, the Pritzker Foundation, right? And that's my my uh, my government, right? So, uh, and then you'll also see that the CDC itself. So this is a CDC document on impact investment, and you'll also see that they promote community health school programs. Okay, so so the CDC itself is promoting impact investing for community school programs. So. If you know, if people thought that I was loosely affiliating the uh, the lobbying of the AFT to to get the CDC to essentially create a situation where they'd have to have more uh, data mining through you know distance learning or hybrid hybrid learning, CDC uh, has an incentive there uh, as well. And I should mention that one of the uh, people that was on the um, um, there she is, it was in the emails. Uh, the CDC AFT email exchanges where they were doing that lobbying name is Marla, I believe it's pronounced Uchelli Kashia. Uh, and she is uh, assistant to the president for educational issues at the AFT. She's the former associate director of working communities at the Rockefeller Foundation. Okay. And um, so I showed you that Rockefeller Philanthropies has got its own impact invest investment uh, firm. And then you also have uh, IBM, and we said that IBM was at the Trilateral Commission meeting with AFT. They're into impact investment with uh, the United Nations through this uh, this uh, uh, NGO or this uh, impact investment organization called Impact Leadership 21. So you've got the United Nations Economic and Social Council and then also a foundation uh, for the support of the United Nations. And then we can uh, 
also find in here, so there's the other part of the Rockefeller Foundation's uh, impact investment. Um, but you also see that Dinah Habib Powell, who is now Dinah Powell McCormick, uh, she was Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs under George W. Bush. She was also uh, a national security advisor to Donald Trump and senior counselor for economic initiatives to Donald Trump. And um, she was also the head of impact investing at Goldman Sachs. And there was an article that she did in the American Enterprise Institute where she's promoting impact investment and the Trilateral Commission post that article on their website. So everybody that I mentioned that, that uh, Schenker was hanging out with, you know, in the 80s, Rockefellers, trilateralists, and then all these other corporate globalists, they all are in, into impact investing. So is the AFT. So is the CDC. Okay. So they're all, you know, it's a big club and you ain't in it as uh, teachers ain't in it as, uh, as George Carlin told them. So I, I, I just wanted to wrap up with, with that. Yeah, I mean, that's again a lot. I mean, all I would say is that kind of gives me that. I think you would, um, you would, um, in the article, it was sort of like the as if the AFT was making the CDC do something, but it's like all these institutions at the top are all pointing the finger at somebody else who's kind of like direct. Oh my god, Kismo, stop! Are all pointing the finger at, at somebody else while they all collaborate and collude to do it um saying that well that it was them that got me to kind of do it i we, we did it reluctantly you know um and and it's and yet it, it's it's like each tentacle is connected to that same octopus yeah i mean at, at the very least they are all on doing the same things they're all on the same page and you know you could say that you know Dinah Hoppy Powell doesn't you know you know doesn't interact with Mar Marla Uccelli Kashyap and you know Shanker was third you know but it's all the same agenda and all the institutions are on the same page together so you know um, at the very least I mean I, and I'm not purporting that they all get in a smoke filled room and like ha 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 this is what, but I mean they all have the same financial. Uh, monetary incentive and, and you know, they're all pitching the same slogans at the same time. So, you know, and, and they do, they all convert together. Like I just said, uh, you know, uh, Kashyap was, you know, she worked for Rockefeller. You know, there's kind of a, that's the other part, that there's kind of a revolving door between a lot of these institutions as well. Just real quick, you know, to what um, John said uh, about that revolving door. Sounds like, again, the CDC, right? The pharmaceuticals. Sounds like the weapons manufacturing in the military. It sounds, and again, you know, it's just, I mean, can it be any more obvious? <laughs> I would say, right? I mean, right? I mean, you know, another way to say that is, look, if you, if, if you look at all those connections and you're like, you know, and then and then think there's nothing there, like there's nothing to see here, you know, oh, it's, that's just all a coincidence. All of them? Like maybe one, maybe if it was just IBM and the AFT, maybe if it was just, uh, you know, Rockefeller, it's all of them. It's literally all of them. And it's for 40 years. So, I mean, if you can't, if you can't think that there is something there that needs to be uh, untangled or otherwise resolved or addressed, um, you're one, I think you're one of those people that, uh, that were, they're one of those students that were, were going to 
going to uh, hold kids in later when we when we uh, focus on other people that had years to year. And just one more thing, John, you mentioned this in a previous episode where, again, you just mentioned 40 years. It hasn't, it's been continuity. It's not like that a binary of the Democrat, Republican, it's irrelevant. You know, there's been a consistent project to get us to this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it's it, here's another example. So Zbigniew Brzezinski, and I've got a picture of the, the book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. It's 1970. So not too long before he set up the Trilateral Commission, commission with David Rockefeller. In that book, he's got a segment in there where he talks about the future of education. And in particular, he's talking about um, how what he calls television consoles and other electronic devices will be modified to uh, transmit education in the home. And then he also says that businesses will be will play a big part in the future of education through what he says, quote, scientific management. Right. And so, again, I mean, that's just another example. I mean, what do we have now? I mean, that's basically your Zoom. Your adaptive learning software is a scientific management. The business is your public-private partnerships, right? And um, you know, it's it, it's been yes, it's been a consistent uh, move move forward. Uh, you know, the the whole time. So um, yeah, and I mean, just coming back to like Kenny's framing at the beginning of capitalism, I and mean, for me, like I was just come back to at the heart of this, right? It's like commodification of students, of like these human beings that. I mean, as teachers, that's like what we're there for. I mean, most of us go into this because we love our students, certainly not for the paycheck. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's just so frustrating to see the teachers continue to kind of, you know, prop up the system at every level, like whether it's the unions, whether it's like programmatic, whether it's higher up, you know, echelons um and i think you know like we've been saying it's just going to take a much broader coalition um than just like you know me going marching into my department meeting and trying to get people to listen because they're not yeah and i really think that it, it does have to happen outside of those institutional channels because uh, another example that i, I wanted to mention earlier i, I kind of almost went on a tangent with it was when I was talking about Anna Herzer, my friend Anna Herzer. And um, she was one of her, Kenneth Goodman, Janet Beach. I think there was, a, there was another one that was sort of at the forefront of this, but they filed a resolution with the Arizona Federation of Teachers to ban the Skinner method through equity, mastery learning, and a bunch of other Pavlovian programs, direct instruction. There's all sorts of buzzwords from the 80s and, uh, that it was all Skinner method, and I've got all sorts of documents to that to show that that's what those euphemisms really mean. Uh, and I'll be putting them in my database eventually. But so they passed that Arizona resolution, and they brought it to the national. So we're getting back to this discussion about you know the, how the federation is organized from the local to the state to the national. When they brought it to the national. It was tabled by the National Executive Committee. And I, I tried to, I asked her, so what exactly does that mean? Like I asked her, did they, did they preempt it for a vote? Did they vote it down? How did that work? She said it was tabled. So, so when it, 
the best way that I understand it is when the when the state passes a resolution, they can bring it to the national. But then there's this national executive council or committee that uh, it's probably like ten people, or you know, it's it's not it's not a huge, it's not like fifty people, one from every state, right? It's it's just the national national branch. It's pretty small. And she said that somebody tabled it. We don't know who, but Shanker is on that or would have been on that committee, right? And so it never actually even went to vote at the, it was supposed to, had it got passed at the National Executive Council, it would have went to vote at that year's national conference. I want to say it's 83, and it never did. So this is just another example of, uh, you know, I mean, even then, and it probably was a lot easier back then. I mean, probably, I, I'm, I basically guarantee it was, right? Because we weren't locked in a, a digital screen prison and, you know, it wasn't the right propaganda where, you know, people who identify as left somehow think that Microsoft and uh, Google are, you know, are, are helping us right now. So, uh, I, you know, it just, it just ultimately has to, I think, has to happen at that grassroots level, you know, making... Making like Andy said these really strange coalitions, but I, that that to me that's just a beautiful thing. And like I mean, you know, we were at that we did our meeting a couple of weeks ago, and I, I I genuinely got choked up just to see all the you know just the different just you know people that we're supposed to you know if if uh, if we were to follow the propaganda, we're supposed to all hate each other and fight, and we're not. And so you know they can't be they cannot destroy that. And as long as that persists, like we. We're going to have the upper hand in the long run. We just got to have the endurance to weather the storm, right? And so, you know, we got to let them punch themselves out and let that propaganda lose its effectiveness while we while we build some, build some relationships. Well, that actually sounds like some good words to wrap up on then. Well done, Jake. It was getting pretty depressing. <laughs> I've learned that uh, ever since I wrote the, ever since my publisher said, you can't just end it on all these <laughs> evil, negative, you got to give solutions. I've learned that anytime I have some sort of uh, public uh, speaking opportunity, yeah, I got to end on some, <laughs> some, some sort of uplifting. Thing, right? Well, just particularly these figures with all these wheels in them, man, they just, I feel like I'm caught in a prison. What do you mean, those pictures that I was Yeah, like, Little yeah, hamster yeah. wheel. Who <laughs> yeah. were the hamsters? Yeah, you yeah, got it. Um, all right, hamster wheel. Um, so I'm going to do uh, Eduardo's wrap up here. And uh, all right, so that does it for this week's episode. Uh, What's left is a weekly political podcast channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog. What dash s-left.webnode.com uh, you can find past ep episodes to this podcast channel there and connect with us uh, we're on Spotify These podcasts are uh, Spotify, iTunes Stitcher, Google Play and the channels uh, where you can see the video are BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube and we're also on Telegram uh, if you'd like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover contact us through our blog um, so I'm Andy Lipson um, with Kenny Zapeta and guest uh, anchor Jessica. Thank you very much, Jessica, for being here. And of course, Jake, thanks again for uh, being guest and uh, sharing this information with us and being part of a kind of a discussion I didn't expect. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, man, it's always an honor to be here. Thanks so much. And thanks to Kenny and Jessica as well. All right. So uh, we'll see y'all next week.